Welcome to Financial Frameworks, final segment of a three-part conversation with Dr. Philip Giles. The three podcasts have covered, in the first one, how the Federal Reserve has worked over the past 15 years to manage financial crises while safeguarding the U.S. financial systems and some international safeguarding as well. The second portion discussed what the Fed has done between March of 2020 and earlier this year to meet the economic challenges of COVID and other pandemic-related issues. The final section, this third podcast in the conversations, addresses the Fed's response to inflation, current interest rate hikes, and quantitative tightening. As always at Financial Frameworks, we relate the micro issues discussed here with recurring financial decisions that we all have to make to successfully navigate our financial waters. If this is your first listen in, Dr. Giles has taught money and banking, interest rates and fixed income securities, among other topics, at Columbia University and to financial institutions in the US and internationally. I should also add that others are asking the same questions that Phil and I are. An article in Sunday's New York Times business section headlined, Fed's exit puts world's biggest bond market on shakier ground. That is exactly what we're discussing here today, interest rates and quantitative tightening. At the conclusion of our conversation, both Dr. Giles and I will boldly go six inches, maybe eight inches, out on a limb and share our thoughts, but not predictions, regarding the future and interest rates. Again, Dr. Giles and current Fed activity. Uh, do you want to talk about quantitative tightening in specific terms, because you've been describing it in general terms, and how that uh, is intended to avoid a recession? Well, that's a good question. If the Federal Reserve was very, very concerned about reducing its balance sheet quickly, it could begin selling huge amounts of treasury securities and huge amounts of mortgage-backed bonds. In doing that, they would drive the price down very sharply, and as the price goes down, the rate would go up very sharply. And uh, especially uh, mortgage-backed bonds, if the rate goes, goes up, that means uh, the housing demand is going to collapse. Now, we, we did see an announcement that uh, house prices um, are not rising as fast now as they were, but we haven't seen any indication that there is a collapse in the housing market, which the Fed, of course, does not want. Okay. So the other way to, uh, to reduce the balance sheet is simply let the securities mature. Uh, and uh, normally in quantitative easing, when a security matures, they just buy another one of uh, the same amount or buy more uh, to keep a balance sheet the same or to raise it. Now, if they allow the securities to mature, in other words, you paid off your mortgage, your, your, you take, that mortgage is now out of the mortgage-backed bond or um, the uh, treasury securities have matured and the Fed didn't buy more then that will slowly reduce the balance sheet. But in my figuring on a very back of the envelope case, that's going to take them 10 years to go from the four, for the 9 trillion that they are today to the 1 trillion that they were 
prior to all the events that we just discussed. So with that $9 trillion, that means all that money is still in the system. Yes. So there's a lot of liquidity. So people would keep on buying, and that would probably support continued inflation. Is that correct? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible for that. Now, here's the thing. The banks are the ones that have the extra cash. And okay. the banks are the ones that make the loans. And when the bank makes a loan, they create money. Now, the bank doesn't have to uh, make a loan. The bank can simply hold the cash at the Federal Reserve. And uh, if the Fed wanted to, they could pay interest on those loans at the bank that the banks have, and the banks won't then make make more loans, and therefore, therefore they won't create uh, excess money. So it's it, it, again, it's the Fed's decision on what they're going to do to try to control uh, bank lending and therefore money creation uh, in order to try to avoid. Uh, excessive inflation. So that, in effect, could slow inflation and money in circulation. Yes. Okay. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about uh, is the fact, uh, what do consumers feel? And there are something out called the Consumer Expectations Index. And you look at it, it's people think economy is good, uh, or bad, the economy is going to be better or worse in the future, and so forth. And based upon expectations, this affects decision-making at the Federal Reserve, for example. Okay. So what are expectations right now? I haven't looked recently. Expecta- I haven't looked recently either, except what I'm reading in the local press. And I think expectations are negative right now, are down. I don't think they're down in a of uh, a, a panic sense, I just think people are re- relatively pessimistic about the near-term economy. So they would hold off on purchases. They would hang on to their money so that it would be available to them in case there was difficulties in the future. Yes, and, and what that means, it will slow the economy. Now, um, so the Fed has a target of 2% inflation rate. Uh, now, they, uh, it, ironically, they do not want to have negative inflation because that has some very bad effects upon the economy. Now, if you look at Europe, for example, in European Central Bank right now, they have negative interest rates on short-term money. And that's something very difficult to deal with. And so uh, I think the Fed was, does not ever want to see a negative Fed funds rate, uh, for example. How does it does it how does a negative interest rate work? Does it does the does the bank have to pay the central bank money to leave it there or what? Yes, as a matter of fact, the uh, European Central Bank at the present time, I think they just changed it uh, is uh, is charging banks to keep money on deposit at the at, uh, at the central bank, and I think until recently it was about minus point five percent. That they that they were quote earning unquote. Now I think it's going to minus point two five percent. What does that do to all the other interest rates? Well, obviously, as we talked before, uh, that's that's essentially uh, the the, uh, European the euro areas Fed funds. It's not Fed, of course, 
but it's the same thing. It's bank deposits. And um, so it will lead to very big. Well, also, we got one thing here. In the U.S., we have two policies. We have a fiscal policy and we have a monetary policy. Within the euro area, we have a monetary policy with the euro, but we don't have a unified fiscal policy. Okay. So we have some strong economies and some weak economies. Uh, and uh, so the strongest economies, uh, Germany as the example, will have very low interest rates. The weaker economies will essentially have uh, interest rates based upon the German rate, plus maybe 1%, 2 or 3% above that. So uh, we don't have a unified fiscal policy, so it's much more difficult to manage the uh, economies within the euro area than within the United States. Okay, okay. Well, a couple of things occurred to me while you were talking, and that is with the inflation rate up, and uh, consumer pessimism increasing or optimism down, would this be a good time to ask about uh, any correlations between today and the 1980s and Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve? It would be indeed a good time, I think. Uh, if you look around this Federal Reserve, uh, and I'm going to get into the discussion of the uh, management of it, except to say that the, the overall management is called the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And uh, the board is, uh, each individual is uh, nominated and then has to be uh, approved by the Senate. Um, so Paul Walker uh, was uh, uh, brought in as the chairman of the Fed. Uh, and I believe, what was it, Michael? You might tell me. It's probably 1984, 82. I don't remember. No, he was brought in by Carter because okay. an advisor to President Carter was on the phone with him, according to a book called Secrets of the Temple. An advisor to President Carter was on the phone with him saying, whatever you do, don't nominate Paul Volcker for <laughs> chairman of the Fed because you won't get reelected. And Carter had already left the room and and nominated Volcker, and the rest is history. Okay, do you know the date? Was it 82? I believe it was 79. 79. Now, the previous chairman was, was viewed as relatively um, uh, weak, if, you, if I can use that term. Paul Volcker, on the other hand, says, we've got a problem. Yep. And he began raising interest rates very sharply. Uh, which caused a recession, um, but basically, he 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 did what he was he was supposed to do. He, he took him up to seven, down. twelve or fourteen or seventeen percent, if I remember correctly. Well, to give you a, a personal example, I, um, I bought a house in 1984 at a floating interest rate, and I think it was fourteen percent. Okay, but um, with uh, Walker and the fall of inflation, interest rates fell sharply. And I began keeping the same mortgage payment uh, month after month, year after year, and essentially paid off my mortgage uh, in a a relatively short time period because of the fall of interest rates. Yep, yep. So do do you think uh, that today, Again, saying the Volcker took interest rates to 15 or 16 percent, and the last inflation number was 8.5 percent. And we now have the quantitative tightening going on and the, ra- the raising of the Fed funds rate. 
if you were looking at purchasing a house, say, six months or two years from now, would you care to make an estimate of where interest rates will be, which is basically asking you uh, what you think the effect of what the Fed is doing now, what effect that will have on the economy? Okay, well, that's a big question, Michael. Yep, it is. We're here for big stuff. (laughs) Okay, well, basically, I have to say, I am generally an optimist with regard to the Federal Reserve. I follow it closely. I I have been to the Fed, uh, taken a tour of the New York Fed and so forth. But um, I'm saying that, first of all, you say quantitative tightening. I would say that's a QT with a, a lowercase t. Because right now, the quantitative tightening is going to be on a slow process because only by the maturing of the securities. And uh, I have a high regard for the Federal Reserve and the seven members of the board. And I think that they know what to do and they will do it correctly. Um, And also, we have the Treasury, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury right now, Janet Yellen. And I think she did a good job and she was a a chairwoman of the Fed. And I think she knows what to do. So uh, in the near term, I'm optimistic that our economic condition will not get worse, and that the inflation will uh, decline, not collapse, but decline slowly. And I don't see a catastrophe in, uh, the, uh, in my foreseeable future. Okay. One of the things that I have wondered about, the money that was made available through both the Fed and the uh, federal government's uh, attempts to ameliorate COVID, I've wondered how much of that money did not get spent in the past, and so people are using that as a cushion that will, uh, as interest rates go up and economic activity declines, and inventories at large corporations are worked off, I wonder if that uh, if there's real reserves there that many households are using and will use to get through the future. Does that make any sense to you, or is that just uh, pie in the sky uh, wondering? No, I don't think it's pie in the sky. Uh, I don't think I'm really uh, qualified to answer that question right now, but because but I do think. One of the reasons that we did not, uh, that we had such a short-lived uh, contraction of the economy, a non-recession, recession, you might say, was because of the stimulus provided by sending the checks to individuals, for example. Uh, and I would imagine that most of that money has been spent, but I haven't investigated, so I can't tell okay. how flesh the households are now. Well, one of the objectives of these podcasts is simply to ask questions. We may not necessarily have the answer to it. When I did my dissertation, I uh, I had no conclusions for my dissertation, which is probably a horrible thing. But I had, <laughs> but I I proposed hypotheses, and uh, the committee was satisfied with that. So uh, I like questions. So let me ask you one more question. If you were 35, instead of the age, which I won't mention that we both are. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I'm not mentioning mine either. If you were 35, 
we've determined that we're optimistic about the Federal Reserve behaving in an intelligent fashion over the next couple of years. And uh, we know what inflation is over the last two or three or six months, if we look at the numbers. The question is, and I'm trying, I'm wrestling with how to phrase it in a non-clutzy fashion. If you had to bet on what you think the inflation rate would be six months from now, and I'm asking the question in that way, because basically when you're talking about inflation, do I buy something now or do I hold off or uh, how do I approach that? If you were to make a projection, not a prediction, about what the inflation rate would be six months from now, what would be your guess? Well, I have to, two parts. I think, first of all, that inflation is going to decline. In other words, it's not going to go up from where it has been over the last six months or a year. Uh, I don't think it's going to decline rapidly. Uh, as, as I said before, the last inflation number was a little bit below the, uh, the peak that had been reached in the previous period. Uh, six months from now, I would... Uh, uh, put out a you know, guess um, at, let's say, 6%. That, you know, uh, I'm glad I'm not uh, a betting person because yep. I could lose a lot of money there. Well, that's very interesting because uh, uh, my guess, and I would not, I'm not going to leave you just hanging out there on a book <laughs> by yourself. My guess was between 5 and 6%. Okay. And the reason why I ask the question is when I taught finance to graduate students, one of the things we talked about was how people make decisions, that it's not just simply rationality and logic and um, black and white mathematical formulas, because we have our limbic brain and our reptilian brain and, <laughs> and we apply our intuition and we make associative judgments. And very often those are very influential in financial decisions. So we have a bias or a predilection or a preference. And my guess was going to be between five and 6% uh, with very limited data. Uh, and now uh, we'll see what happens. Well, uh, I, I think there's one other thing that we have to address uh, right now the, is the state of the economy in the next few quarters. Uh, right now, where we are not in a recession, uh, it depends upon your um, your outlook. Um, some people could say we're going to go into recession, and therefore I very well may lose my job. If in that case we have an expectation of a downturn uh, and financial concerns ahead, that's going to uh, slow down purchases, especially purchases, especially of items that have a long life, like an automobile or a house. That's true. And the other thing we didn't talk about, but I, I really wanted to tap into your uh, perceptions about uh, the monetary system. But the other thing uh, that we haven't talked about is that uh, these are challenging times in terms of changing industries. Uh, the way work is done has changed a lot in the last couple of years, less commuting. And uh, we just had a, it's called the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, 
but a lot of it is about energy and electric vehicles and automobiles is one of the big drivers of the American economy. And uh, it's sort of like switching horses, uh, like the old Pony Express people did, uh, jump off of one onto the other without hitting the ground. <laughs> and that's not an easy feat. So that's another factor, too. So I guess we're, we're optimists. We're inveterate optimists, which is, speaks well to our characters, I think. Is there anything else you would like to add? We've, I think we've covered everything that I wanted to. Is there anything that you would like to add about the Federal Reserve? Uh, any comments? I think that it does uh, as good a job as possible in an imperfect world, having now watched it for 40 years, but I don't have your expertise. Well, if, if we wanted to in the future, we could talk about uh, the payment system the role of the Federal Reserve and central banks in that system, uh, the dominance of the American dollar today, what's called the reserve currency, uh, a potential future. Is the uh, Chinese currency become the dominant currency in the future? My view is no, I don't think so. But uh, And then once you get into that, you get into the topic of economic sanctions. So that would be areas that I think people would find interesting to understand uh, what it is and maybe what's, uh, what we're looking at in the future. Okay. You have uh, just uh, – you've, you've done uh, what Aesop's fable did about uh, the mice were trying to get rid of the cat. And, <laughs> and uh, so uh, one mouse came up with the idea of putting a bell on the cat. <laughs> So the other mice said, okay, you go do it. <laughs> so you're on for three more topics and future episodes. Well, looking forward to it, Michael. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy. Take it. care. Okay. Thank you, Phil, for that review of the critical elements of the Fed's approach to dealing with inflation in both interest rate management and the more innovative balance sheet management that is occurring right now. It's very clear from listening to that, that your theoretical and logical insights are heavily conditioned by experience, by working with senior financial executives throughout your career, and by being exposed to and being attentive to all sorts of financial, I won't say pyrotechnics, but gymnastics, that have occurred in your professional lifetime and mine. Your insights with regard specifically to interest rates and how central banks safeguard their populace and their systems is invaluable. And I know that these conversations will be listened to many times and the listeners will benefit from your observations, your wisdom, and your experience. Financial Frameworks often provides listeners with questions to link podcast materials to recurring financial decisions in your lives. After the last episode, I presented two questions, one about decisions you've made in the last couple of years and one about recent decisions. Today, I will ask you to look into the future a little bit to answer a two-part question. Let's assume that it is six months from now and the inflation rate has receded from the current 8.5% to 
but is still above the Federal Reserve's desired 2% annual inflation rate. The two-part question is this. Number one, how much, as a percentage of your weekly or monthly expenditures, are you spending on groceries and personal gasoline? You could add some other things, but those are two big items, and let's just focus on two things right now. And do you believe that that number or percentage will rise or fall over the coming six months? The second part of my question is, what information sources are you using, along with the knowledge of what you're spending right now? You've gathered that data, and you know what that number is, or those numbers are. What information sources are you using to supplement that knowledge as you make your future projections? Those are my two questions. You already have Dr. Giles and my thoughts on future inflation, and I will post my logic with regard to these two questions and research sources on finframeworks.com along with this podcast. As always, thank you for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we look forward to seeing you at our next podcast. That episode will spend time on important financial concepts and the language used in finance. Over the years, when I was in front of a room full of students, many of them were managers of significant physical assets, but many of them had limited formal financial training outside of their core engineering cost analysis or capital project analysis. So they consistently requested a session be spent on financial terms and their application so that they could decipher what finance executives in their corporations were requesting of them or to increase their ability to read financial materials that they were asked to review. We will start our dialogue focusing on financial terms and their application by focusing on some of the more important ones. Again, thanks for listening. Mike Lehan.